This is Geek Gab with your host, Dornall and me, Daddy Warpig. We are back, Geek Gab, for Saturday, May 28, 2022. Dornall, how was your week? Hey, man. As if we just talked about it. <laughs> Uh, week's been good. Nothing new going on out here. Just the end of spring. Uh, it's beautiful in the neighborhood at the home and, uh, just working gaming. And I do have some interesting news. Would you like to talk about Dungeons and Dragons? Uh, I just don't think that's in line with, with the themes of our show. I think that our audience would be shocked and surprised if we talked about Dungeons and Dragons. But I think wow. just this once, we might be able to go there. Okay, just this once, we'll talk about Dungeons and Dragons. We'll make a special exception uh, for yes. that. Uh, I appreciate that because as if we didn't need more evidence of the wisdom of the bro SR. I finally got it into my head to uh, begin preparations for uh, a game of my own. And to do that, I decided last Sunday that I would play some AD&D with my brother. And instead of doing the usual D&D adventure dungeon crawling rules, uh, I had him create a level nine fighter and we experimented with the domain building rules uh, from the uh, dungeon master's guide. Have you messed with those before? No, I haven't. Now I recall you created a, a, a quick setting for uh, Trilopolis, uh, is that something that you pre-generated or did you try using any of the procedural generation rules for stuff like uh, the terrain or the encounters or anything? Um, I cheated because I did what any good game master does. I grabbed something and cheated it and then uh, added a bunch of memes on top so you like you had an, a map an island map already keyed up and ready to go and you just trolopolized it i wouldn't say that exactly on the air i wouldn't say that <laughs> so what we did is is we took the we took a slightly different approach and because he was creating a character fresh as a patron and because he, you know he didn't actually level from 1 to 9 we hand waved a lot of stuff away like how many how much funds he has and so on and so forth so uh, we hand waved away some of the costs, but we we plopped them down in a hex. And I said, "Okay, you have selected your 
site for building your castle, let's go through the procedure of exploring the countryside and figuring out who and what is there and where you're going to build everything. And let me tell you what. It's a pretty simple procedure, if a bit time-consuming, uh, because the terrain that you encounter is randomly generated. There's an appendix in the guide, uh, and there's a you know a chance of encounter, a 10% chance of encounter every step. And so you just there's more or less... There's more that you more or less follow those wilderness exploration rules and you figure out what's there in the hex. And I tell you what, it only took a couple of hours to flesh out his area and it worked. Not only did it generate, you know, this area for a game, uh, it also populated it with some people, monsters and, and other encounters and it was fun to execute the, you know, the two of us legitimately had fun because we had so many things come up that we had to make decisions on. I don't know how else to put it, but that system for, it sounds like tedious roll dice, right on a map, roll dice, right on a map. When you're doing it with a player, maybe it's not as fun as, you know, going after a dragon horde, but it was fun. It was an enjoyable experience. And at the end, we were both really satisfied with, okay, not only not only were we happy with what we came up with, but we both had ideas on what was going to happen next. Like there was, there was continued play. And at the end, he, uh, he was like, okay, well, you know, I'm ha really happy with this. All you need to do is find players who are going to join and uh, and adventure in here because hey i've got a whole you know hex full of giant toads that need to be cleared out for example not giant toads no <laughs> uh so yeah that that was it that's that was one of the highlights of my week uh the other one being every day because Every day is a freaking blessing. Um, my week's a big blur because I'm working all the time. Uh, all I, work and no play? Yeah. I'm I'm sorry I'm I, I'm not talking. Sorry for the gap there, folks. For the uncharacteristic realm uh, ream of silence there. I uh, I'm I'm rolling over my uh, you know what happened this week in my mind. The only thing I played this week was uh, um, the Trollopolis session. Uh, we got bashed in the head. For the Trilopolis sec, uh, session, once again we uh, set out for this goblin dungeon, and once again we had a random monster encounter that we 
barely got any XP for, and this time we'd got no treasure. There were seven players, and the game master, we, we ran into like 12 ogres, a band of 12 ogres wandering in the wilderness. And we took on Mage Drop Cloud Kill that got like six of them, and the rest of us took them on, um, set up a little ambush, and hurt them. I myself was playing a cleric. When I made the cleric, I picked one weapon that was really good for smashing up small and medium-sized creatures and another uh, weapon that was good for smashing up large-sized creatures. So I had my eye on this situation from the day I created this character, just in case. Because uh, apparently I'm a long-term planner in the campaign. That's been my MO. Um, so if you're wondering, it was a, a footman's mace and a footman's flail. Footman's flail are good at smashing up large creatures. You get 2d4 damage for them. Footman's mace has decent width. Smashing up small, medium, you get, uh, I believe, 1d8. Footman's uh, mace, fantastic weapon. Um, Especially if you're using the uh, weapons versus armor table, the adjustment yes. table. Oh, the footman's flail? They get positive bonuses against all armor classes. All across the So, yeah. You either get plus one or plus two against every armor class. So, you know, it's a nice weapon. Um, it really augments your two hit. Uh, so it's really good if you're a low level. Um, I mean, and not that, you know, plus 5%, plus 10% is anything to sneeze at at any level, but... Uh, it is nice at low levels, especially. So we got in, we killed Booger, and then uh, we captured one of them and had him lead us back to his lair. And in the lair, we uh, killed everything that was in the lair. And then we went searching for treasure. And they have three treasure types, one of which is chance for potions, one of which is chance for jewelry, and one of which is chance for all the coins and some gems. Or maybe it was jewelry and gems, and the other one is just chance for all of coins. And so the game master, who was uh, Brian, uh, Fluid Penreku on, on Twitter, um, he had us all just did the percentile rolls as players for the treasure. And so we needed to roll under the percentages. And there are seven of us. So had, uh, I think eight or nine chances. So we all went around in order and every single one of us rolled something like 80%. Oh, no. Every single time. So we got the gold that the um, ogres were carrying, which turned out to be about 600 GP. And we got nothing from the lair. Nothing. 
zero. And 600 GP divided among seven adventurers is nada. It is nil. It doesn't even pay for a month's worth of upkeep on your uh, lifestyle. Harsh. And XP from just killing monsters is nil. I think we got 320 XP, which would have left me 24 below leveling up. And I asked the game master, I'm like, is there anything I can do to get 25 XP <laughs> so I can level up? And the game master is like, no, I can't think of anything. And then Jeffro says, get a percent bonus for having a high attribute score. And I'm like, yes, actually I do. My wisdom is 17, so I get 10% bonus. And because we got 320 XP, my 10% bonus came out to 32 XP. <laughs> oh, boy. And I'm like, Wow, 32 XP. That just barely did it. And so it just barely gave me enough to level up. And get this. This is the best. This is a capper on the night. This was just like a gift from the golden gods of gaming. I got 32 XP, which puts me up to barely enough to level. But because I didn't have enough gold to actually train, so I need 4,500 because he's third level. He's going for fourth. I need 4,500 level. I don't have anywhere near that amount of gold. That means I'm going to have to go out and adventure for 4,500 GP. And because I already have enough to level, I won't get any XP. None. Zero. Zilch. For that Dude. adventure, I, I will just be trying to get some gold. That's hard. I'm like, I'm like, it would have been better not to level. <laughs> you regret that. You regret that thirty-two XP now. Yes, that 30 X, <laughs> thirty-two XP is sitting like bitter ash in my mouth. <laughs> So I did have some fun this week, but it 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 turned to regret and tears. Um, but no, so what's I'm your take? Doing... What, what's your take on that from like a game design perspective? Because that sounds kind of unfun, if you ask me. No, I'm fine with it. Uh, see, as a player, you have to make the choice. You have to make the choice to hang with the mechanics, to be comfortable if your character dies. Um, you have to make the choice to be okay with rules that may seem fiddly, may seem harsh, but in actuality, make for a better game even if they're tough sometimes 
you have to make the choice to be okay with, yes, you have to keep track of encumbrance. And if you're running out of food or water, it causes you problems because then you have to come up with innovative ways around it. My innovative way around this training issue, which I haven't taken action on yet, is going to be to talk to the clergy in Minus Mandolf and see if there is some service I can do for the church that they will either waive the training fees or take what I've got that I can pay for training in return for some future service. And that may be just a, you know, downtime adventure, or it may be um, me having to go to whoever shows up next Thursday and say, look, I'm obligated to this thing for the church so I could get training time from last time. Will you guys help me? So this apparent meanness that apparently ruined my game is forcing me to come up with an innovative solution, which other people have done before. So it's not like I'm creating this on the fly. I'm not laying claim to any, you know, great creativity with this solution. But uh, yeah, it forces you having food and uh water difficulties forces you to come up with innovative solutions which we did when we were playing through keep on the borderlands right we came yeah. up with a solution of that cabin we liberated from the crazy dude who sicked his um like jungle cat on us we used his house to stash casks of water and some supplies so we didn't necessarily have to go all the way back to the city every time to get supplies um and uh other things like that you just start coming up with solutions and those solutions make for great makes for great playing the game because that's the reward that's what people find fun about playing games um is coming up with solutions. It gives you a little jolt of, a jolt of happiness. But it also opens up opportunities for interesting things to happen uh, in the campaign down the line. So we found this ogre lair, and it's this big log cabin that we told uh, Macho Mandolf about. And now they can send guards out and garrison this cabin. And we can use it as a stopover point in the future. So it has a, it came from a random encounter, but it's going to have a persistent effect in the future. And we can stash supplies there. We can stash, you know, weapons or, you know, uh, Arrows, especially if you're a, if you shoot bows, it's going to be nice to have a place where you can just stash extra arrows. So you're not lugging them around. It's not counting against your encumbrance. You have a, you have more space to haul gold. But if you need to, if you ran out of arrows, 
when we're if we ever go back to this goblin cave um we can run back and and you know at this place and be better off so random encounters um it, it gives you an opportunity even though limited ammunition and counting ammunition keeping track of every euro you spend and having to keep track of supplies and stuff like that seems like it's uh onerous it actually turns out to be a good thing i mean we saw these ogres coming and we we could have tried to run away but that would have meant abandoning our wagon so the only reason we stayed to fight was to keep the wagon and to keep the stuff in the wagon. Um, so, yeah. And the stuff in the wagon was primarily supplies, like water and food for the journey there and back. So it seemed... So if I can, if I can sort of it, restate what you're trying to say is that the, all these things that sort of sound like fiddly or or tedious game mechanics that people sort of like to discard uh if you if you view them as an opportunity to you know uh, or an obstacle to overcome you can continue to enjoy the game you're you're you are in fact playing the game and and coming up with interesting things and having fun yes absolutely and it just takes a change. It takes a choice on the player's behalf. Um, it takes a change to be willing to accept these things as challenges and not look at them as impediments. I think the big mistake that is made um, in later editions of Indeed, far too many players didn't view them as challenges and just complained about them. So the game designers felt like they had to change them so people would like the game, so people would buy the game. And I'm not saying there are no mechanics that really are just bad that are not challenges. You can justify a lot of bad mechanics by saying, oh, no, it's just a challenge. And in reality, it is a bad mechanic. But these mechanics are not bad. They ground your players in a sense of reality of the world right they mm -hmm. make the world seem real because you have friction with the same sort of things you have friction in the real world and you need to pay attention to the same sort of things you would have to pay attention to in the real world that's what makes it that's what makes the world feel real that's what you know gives the players buy in feeling like this is an actual bench, not just floating through Candyland. Um, so it helps the various similitude of the world. It helps players buy in, and all you have to do is just accept it. Some players will just choose not to accept it because they'll get irritated or whatever, and, you know, you just have, those players are just going to be annoyed. And you just kind of have to say, well, hang with it or be annoyed. Well said. So, yeah. I, I would, uh, 
oh man, I could spend all hour talking about this. I have a couple of, of thoughts that I'd love to dive deeper in on that. Because it seems to me that you would like to find players who enjoy that challenge. Yes. Um, but if you think of players having trouble, uh, I mean, you can't always just find all the right people all the time. How right. would how would you just as a exercise? How would you try to encourage or teach other players to look at it that way? Um, I don't know. That is a game master skill that you have to develop, um, and that's not something I. I I would say that's something you have to develop just over time. Uh, and sit, uh, if the player's irritated, you know, by it, it's an interpersonal skill. You just have to develop, say, hey, look, I know you're irritated by this, um, but really these rules are there for a reason, and they actually will make for a more enjoyable game in the long run. Um, so, you know, put up with it and there will be good effects from it. There will be good consequences for it. And it helps to step back as the game designer to set that out explicitly, or I believe it would help to set that out explicitly, the GM advice chapter, to tell the game master, look, these rules are here for a reason and they will have good results in your campaign down the line. They're not just fiddly rules that are here um, because we're trying to simulate something or for no reason or because your game designer is autistic, okay? They're not here because of the tism. They're here because of a specific reason in the design of the game, and they will help your game play. Just run it with these rules. Don't house rule them, and you will see positive effects. And then actually give them some examples, you know, of positive effects you've seen. I don't like going down that path because you could waste a lot of your rulebook space trying to prove things to people that you can't prove when it's just really the right answer is, hey, try this. It will work, you know, and be sure to tell your players, hey, this will have positive effects. Um, it's just going to be a much more concise rule book if you just say, these rules are here for a specific reason. Um, we've seen it in other campaigns, play it, and they will have positive effects on your game. Try it. Let it roll. Uh, mm. You may not know the positive effects for, you know, several modules in, but trust us, it works. Um, yeah, and after after years and years and decades of gaming, I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and and say that that's a much better approach than rule zero, saying hey, if you don't like something, throw it out. Yeah, I mean, the problem with rule zero is that people just get too used to throwing things out that are actually good for the game in the long run 
but seem annoying or incomprehensible in the short run. Um, it's just like being online. And I guess I've learned this from Twitter. This is my Twitter-earned design philosophy. You can say, A, here's something you should do, and B, here's a perfectly reasonable, logical argument for it that happens to be true, and then have, you know, 50 people agree with you and 30 that don't. And they just will never see the logic. You can talk to them enough. So if you're if you're selling a manual and a third or 40% of your audience just disregards or discards the rules that are actually important to making the game work, you've already lost because they're going to be turning in bad reviews. They're going to be turning in bad reviews because one, they'll think your rules are crappy when they're not. And two, um, say your game doesn't work. And the reason why the game doesn't work is because they're not playing the game. So it's far better off up front just to say, Hey, these rules are here for a reason. Use them. Trust us. If you want the superior playing experience that you can get in this game, use the rules that, as they're written because you will get a superior game experience. Now, that only counts if you as a game designer can actually build a game that provides you know, a superior game experience. A lot of game designers can't. Um, it's just like Steve Jobs said, at one point, you know, users don't necessarily know what they want. Nobody was asking for an iPhone before the iPhone was introduced. And Steve said, a lot of people don't know what they want. And he gave them the iPhone. But what people really had said they wanted was a, you know, Blackberry with extra features or Blackberry with added buttons or, you know, whatever. And then he gave him the iPhone, and all of a sudden, everybody wanted the iPhone to the point where everybody copied the iPhone. And that's all you get nowadays is either the iPhone or copies of the iPhone. And then a bunch of other companies said, yes, that's right. That's a great philosophy. We should adopt that philosophy and started forcing crap on their customers. Oh, you're a customer. You don't know what you want. Here, take this piece of crap. Well, the philosophy that customers don't know what they want only works if you can actually give them what they want, what they really want. If you're smart enough and talented enough and hardworking enough to give them what they want. And the philosophy that you should play this rules as written only works if you can actually write rules that work, that actually give people a superior experience despite seeming annoying in the short term. If you can't do that as a game designer, if you're not talented enough, if you haven't done the work with playtesting or whatever, then don't put that on your rule system. Let them run with rule zero, okay? Let the game master modify things until it works for his, his game. Um, you have to be good enough to make that stick. Because uh, the only excuse for an attitude like that is actually being good enough to back it up.
Sorry, I've been thinking about this a lot in the past couple of months. <laughs> I, that's why I had to pull it out of you. Uh, well said, though. Well said. Uh, I think uh, that's why that's why we give AD and D the Dungeon Master's got a lot of respect. Gary Gygax, people like him and Dave Arneson, they really put the work and the time in. You know, we can listen. We can listen to those guys because um, we many of us found out the hard way. But when you follow those rules, uh, you find out that they do exist for a reason. Uh, let me. I just want to give one quick example. And like all the other examples, it's not going to convince everybody, but let me give you an example. Things that seem nonsensical in a D&D that actually have a deep reason and make sense once you understand it and weren't explicitly stated in the Game Master, you know, in the Dungeon Master's Guide or the Player's Handbook. If you look in the back of the Player's Handbook, you will see the Outer Plains. And the Outer Plains are a big circle. And in the middle of the Outer Plains, and I'm only talking about Monster Manual Players Handbook DMG right now. No, not any of the rest of AD&D that came later. Just those three books. In the middle of them, it says C figure A. And figure A is astral plane, elemental planes, positive and negative material plane, and the prime material plane in the middle of them. So we go to the cleric class. The cleric class says, Clerics can be any alignment but true neutral. You cannot have any true neutral clerics, ever. And people say, well, why the hell can't you have neutral clerics? And nobody understands it. Everybody just looks at, oh, that's weird. I don't like that. Throw it out, house rule it. And then you have druids who are a subclass of cleric that can only be true neutral. So let me tie this all together because it all fits together. It's all part of the same cosmology. When you're a cleric, you're a cleric of a god. Druids are not clerics of gods. They're clerics of the natural world. Clerics are aligned, alignment is something that emits from the outer planes who are all aligned, they all have alignments, gods live on the outer planes, they have alignments, cleric worship day. In the player's handbook, the one alignment that doesn't have an outer plane is true neutral. Right? Mm. Take take the manual of the planes because that's not what I'm talking about. We'll elaborate on that if you want to some other time. What is true neutral is the prime material plane. Clerics get their magical spells from servants of their deity or from the deity itself. Druids worship the natural world which is part of the prime material plane and is true neutral because it's in the middle of the outer planes. It's true neutral as are positive and negative material planes and the elemental planes. Elemental planes are true neutral. What do druids get at high level? Summoning elementals. True neutral. 
What do druids get their spells from? What are the deities, the gods of druids, first off, are the sun, the moon, and trees? Right there in the class description. What powers their spells? Right there in the class description of the PHB. Mistletoe. Part of the natural world. Part of the prime material plane. Neutral. True neutral. Druids are true neutral. Because... What they worship is the natural world on the prime material plane. Clerics can't be true neutral because there's no deities on the prime material plane. There's only deities on the outer planes, and all of them have alignments. So, rules that seem to not make sense, that irritate people, because they can't or haven't grokked the logic of it actually make perfect sense, but you have to kind of fit them together. Um, and I'm kind of, I differ on that because that's something you might want to explain, even if quickly. It's different than trying to justify rules because people aren't going to buy justifying rules in a large part. You just have to let them play those rules and see how they work in play. Tell them, don't house rule this until you try them out in play because you're not going to get it. Um, and then, but explaining cosmology there and how that all fits together, um, it would have been a nice thing for Gary to do. Mm -hmm. So that's something I figured out in the last month. It's something that occurred to me that I put together as I was looking at classes in the player's book. Pretty well uh, thought it, out stuff. Yeah, it does fit together. It does make sense, but you have to kind of you have to kind of put things together from several different sources. In this case, at least all the sources were in the PHP. And they weren't in like three places in the PHB plus two places in the Game Master Guide or the Dungeon Master Guide, which is, you know, pretty typical of, of GUGX. Um, so, yeah, that's my, uh, that's just an example of why rules as written AD&D is good because Gygax really did think these things through, even though he didn't justify them most of the time. And even if he didn't explain a lot of the things, uh, they really do make sense. You have, if that you want, it's an explanation. You just have to kind of put it together for yourself post hoc. And that's not just a Gygax thing. That was the same reason with Torg. I had to, you know... when I was learning Torg or, or analyzing Torg over the course of a, a decade or two, I had to put a lot of that stuff together post hoc from statements the game designers make or just made or just, you know, realizing how the game worked and seeing what effects certain mechanics had and stuff. It's Yeah, it makes sense. It's so it's it's not just uh it's not just Gygax. To a large extent, every rule system is like that. So they don't take time. You just don't have space. The longer, the more comprehensive your rule system is. 
the less space you have in the rule book to to tell people stuff like that. You just have from the rules and say these are the rules. So yeah, and that's what makes that's what makes rule zero so insidious is that it set that expectation for the whole industry. Now people who are familiar with RPGs just don't you shouldn't have to explain that sort of thing, right? Um, but we have we definitely we have a culture everywhere where we don't you know you don't read the manual you don't necessarily follow the rules uh, that that's sort of that's for stuffy board game types to actually read the rules and play by the rules yeah and and people don't realize that the thing their house rule has a lot of side interactions with other rules and unless you're willing to go full game designer on things you don't know what you're changing or why you're changing it or what effects it has. Uh, so you don't know how it interacts. Um, very often you haven't been in on the design of the game in the first place to know how changing it interacts. And uh, either that or learn the game system well enough that you know it almost as good as one of the original designers. So, yeah, rule zero. Well, that, rule zero is uh, evil. Generally a bad idea, yeah. Hey, that was a great game design discussion, but uh, uh, do you want to talk about some animated features you've seen? Sure. And one <laughs> non-animated, because I watched it, and might as well give a review of it. I'll do that one quick. The Lost City of D with Sandra Bullock and uh, Tanning Chatham and uh, um, Brad Pitt is basically Romancing the Stone, but not as good. It's not a bad movie. It's actually fun and, and interesting in a few places, but Romancing the Stone is better. So if you have Paramount Plus streaming, you can watch it. It's all right. I mean, it's fun. Brad Pitt is great in it. He is the literally the best part of the movie. Channing Tatum does a fun job. Uh, and uh, I really... Uh, I enjoyed it. It wasn't torture. Uh, and given how many things I've watched your torture, it's... Uh, it wasn't a waste of time, but yeah. I'm, I'm going to say it again. Uh, Romancing the Stone was better. Sandra Bullock, actually, uh, she's a great actress. Uh, her Oscar win was well-deserved for The Blind Side. Uh, I've liked her ever since. I think I first saw her in Speed. Uh, that was her she, breakout film, yeah. Yeah. She generally does a good job in everything. Uh, so, yeah. Um, it's far more a woman's movie than Romancing the Stone was. Romancing the Stone was a was a romantic comedy that had enough action and stuff that uh, it really got a lot of crossover with guys. That's why you could watch it and and be great with it. Is that's why it was such a big hit. Is that it was a real big crossover with guys. This movie isn't uh, isn't exactly as big a guy flick. So you know. If you want something that will help you kind of score points with your significant other, um, yeah, this is a decent movie to to do that with. Oh, it also has Harry Potter in it, 
Rupert. No, that's that's the Weasley. Why can't I remember his name? Daniel Radcliffe. I don't Daniel know. Daniel Radcliffe. Yeah. Uh, he's in it, and he does a great job too. He's the bad guy, and it's fun. Um, the bad guy. Yeah. Um. So he's he's a fun bad guy. I like it. I like him in it. So yeah, there's enough fun. There's enough actual humor that had me chuckling or laughing. To uh, even though it's not as good as *Romancing the Stone*, it it was not. It was worth a couple hours of my time to watch. So I'm not giving it a strong recommendation, but you know, it's kind of a recommendation. Yeah, kind of a recommendation. Well, I'll I'll kind of ignore your recommendation. I mean, <laughs> I, I don't I don't think you specifically, knowing your taste in movies, would like it. Look, that I was like, I did like speed. Hey, good job. That wasn't like fifteen or twenty minutes. That was three minutes. I can do concise sometimes. It was very concise. I like it. So. Love, Death, and Robots, season two. I just caught up because season three came out and I realized I hadn't watched season two. Uh, Love, Death, and Robots. Have we talked about this? Have, have we talked about this before? Because I can't believe it's in season three. I saw a trailer. It looked kind of interesting. We we saw, I think we both watched season one and we talked about it. Season one had like 18 different shorts in it. And a lot of them were really good there was like an aliens one where people settle on an alien planet and they had you know creatures that were sort of like xenomorphs and they break through the fields uh break through these energy fields that are protecting the farms and they're have the farmers are having to shoot them off it's it's almost rednecks in mech suit tractors um it, it was awesome that one was awesome some of them were not so good but some of them were were really good and i loved them a lot um season three is only nine season two which is the one i just watched i haven't seen season three yet but it's on my you know to view list so that might be coming up in a uh in a bit because it's netflix they dropped them all at once so it's a binge watch you can just watch them all um and uh, I watch, so I've watched all eight of them now. Um, there were again, it's a mixed bag, but that's okay. It's an anthology series. They're all based off of different, um, different stories, um, and one of them is kind of a satire about what to do if you're, or what happens to this you know, old lady when her robot automated vacuum cleaning laundry machine starts trying to kill her, her AI robot starts trying to kill her and what happens with that. Um, it was pretty funny until then. And I found out it was based on a John Scalzi story, which made all the 
bad things about it in retrospect make perfect sense. Um, then there was uh, one about a future where everyone lives forever. And so having kids is illegal and it's grim. But uh, because I will say it's about a future where having kids is illegal and it's a dystopia. So you can take it from there why it would be grim. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I really don't. I mean, I'll be honest. I, I say it, you know, flamboyantly, but our audience is really intelligent people. So they can put that together without needing a lot of more details. Um, but it's actually good about what people are like when they're living just for themselves over the course of decades or centuries and uh, what happens to a, a policeman in this situation and, um, you know, the things you see in a society that's turned in entirely on really self-centered people and it's actually really I don't say this a lot because I don't tend to like it, but if you, there's the surface story that's going on, which you can completely understand. But if you put a, a little thought into what you're seeing uh, beyond the surface, um, it's actually really compelling. And I'm impressed with how they managed to do that in what is, after all, a short. I mean, these things aren't, you know, I think they're like 10 to 20 minutes um so just withdrawing the backgrounds uh you see the backgrounds and if you allow yourself to think about what those backgrounds mean it adds a whole other layer of context in this one uh and they don't uh they really don't skimp on the meaning so i'm impressed it got made i'm impressed that it got made and broadcast on Netflix. I, I don't know how they did that, how they got it past Netflix. Um, but yeah, um, it was very, you know, emotional and really surprising. Then, uh, and it's about a policeman and they show him doing actual detective work. And so I like that too. Um, you know, he's pretty sharp and he does pretty sharp detective work. Um, and then there's one called The Long Grass, which I really liked. It is not as layered as uh, as the one I was just talking about, but it's, it's really awesome. Uh, it's a great little... Uh, a little story, and I can't talk about it because anything I say would just spill it. Um, but it was, uh, it was awesome, and uh, it was horrifying and terrifying, and uh, a lot of fun. Um, so, you know, there are some that weren't as good, but there are some that you know were worth watching. So. Yeah, I can give you a recommendation. I would watch uh, Love, Death, and Robots season one. I'd watch season, I, I did watch season one, but I would recommend it. Uh, I did watch season two, I'd recommend it. 
and I'm going to watch season three and just, uh, you know, review it sometime. Don't know when, because season two has been out for like two years, I think, and I haven't, I didn't watch it, not for any specific reason. I just hadn't watched it yet. A lot of things going on. Um, Chippendales Rescue Rangers. Uh, it's been quite controversial online. Has it? Um, yeah, apparently a lot of people were upset about a lot of things and people were putting it down and stuff, but I liked it. It's not as, you know... So tell me, tell me about this because this is, I mean, this is a classic cartoon from the, you know, the golden age of Disney TV, like uh, Ducktales and such. So, what's the? Um, is this just uh, a movie version of that same animation style? It is uh, set in the future of the Robert Roger Rabbit universe. And it assumes <laughs> Roger Rabbit literally shows up for uh, a brief cameo. That's awesome. It assumes that the original Rescue Rangers was one of those TV shows made by Living Tunes. Um, and so the reason why the show stopped was because one of Chip and Dale decided to go off and make a solo show. And so they ended up canceling Chip and Dale's Rescue Rangers. And there was a rift in their friendship that lasted. Uh, and because of something that happens, uh, they're brought back together and are reluctantly forced to work together to go help a friend and um, the entire cast of the original show eventually getting, ends up getting involved. And so it has a whole bunch of not just tunes, but other animated style characters. Like you see a, an anime style character at one point, there's a claymation character at another point. Um, so when you see either characters directly lifted from other popular cartoon shows or when the people who made the, this movie couldn't get to do it, um, couldn't get the licenses to include them, very close replicas that were just far enough off not to get them sued. <laughs> Um, which is ironic with the plot of the movie, but I'm not going to spoil that. Um, and I want to say that this movie could easily have been made a vessel for politics, but they didn't do it. And the themes were right there begging to be made a vessel for politics, but they didn't do it. So it was obviously there. For instance, in the original movie of Roger Rabbit, 
all the tunes lived in Toontown, right? Yeah. You could say there was a Toon ghetto, and they were segregated from society. Mm-hmm. But in this movie, all the tunes live in and among normal people. They are not segregated in the modern world. Now, one could easily see where that could have been played up into showing how not segregated the tunes were and how they have made progress in all the years since 1940 and how awesome it is that in the modern era things were so progressing so well but how much more they had to do and how tunes were having to fight for things didn't didn't even mention it didn't touch it didn't hint at it didn't slightly even imagine it. It it they didn't come up even in a hint of a hint of a hint of a hint. They just go to school with regular people. And you know I, the fact that it even occurred to me is just because I'm so used to getting walloped over the head with the message. Um, so if you're wondering if this, if this is a message movie, it's not a message movie. And that's really reassuring to me. I mean, it was really a relief to not being lectured at all the time. It's not a message movie. And maybe that makes me give the movie more credit than it deserves. But here's something else that was not a message. You know, a lot of movies are eschewing traditional animation, right? And they're going sure. for computer animation. And that's being made fun of in a lot of ways in the movie. They talk about how, you know, how awesome some computer animation is. And then you see the computer animation, like little slices of these fictional movies they made up. And it looks awful. It looks so terrible. And you get it. It's a comment about how people are going wow over computer animation. But it, it does, in many cases, just look terrible. So that's the kind of commentary you get. It's commentary on pop culture. But they also have a procedure to surgically upgraded tunes from traditional animation to CGI. So all during, all during the movie, Chip is traditionally animated, and Dale is CGI. <laughs> now. That's kind of a cute gag, actually. It is. It's funny. One could see where there might be parallels with the message of there being an operation to change the animation style from one style of animation to another style of animation 
to completely change what the characters were born as into something they weren't born as. Hmm. Thing they felt that they were really kind of should have been all along. Again, hmm. there was not even a hint of 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 that in the movie. It wasn't there. No lecturing, no virtue signaling, nothing. It was entirely a gag about traditional animation versus computer animation and how computer animation was taking over the industry and how all these traditionally animated characters have had to go to being computer animated, like Bugs Bunny and, and Daffy Duck did in, in the, the last um, in the last Space Jam movie or whatever, or, or shorts. So I am telling you, there were big, obvious chunks of what could have been easily used to preach to you the message, but which were not. So this is not a the message movie. It's a movie about fun things. It's a movie about animation. And the only message is parodying, like they parodied um, stupid crossover movies. And I wish I could remember, but they had like a Batman crossing over with uh, some dumb other character that's not even in the DC universe uh, and how everybody was saying how awesome and how dramatic and how it was a silly little character who would never even make it in a big, you know, who, who should never be in a Batman movie like uh, Woody Woodpecker or, or some other character like that. Um, so there were so many things about this movie that were fun, the gags were funny, they did callbacks to things that happened in, in the original Chippendales Rescue Ranger that actually turned out to be important to the plot. They treated the original not as something to poop on, but as something that was respected. Uh, all the things that they do with remaking the originals that we see so often, that just last week I was complaining about, they do not do in this movie. So all of the things you go into a movie being, you know, all defensive about and fully ready to lash about didn't do. And so I wish I had known that because it would have made me much less like, you know, cat in a room full of rocking chairs, nervous, but I actually had fun. I really honestly had fun watching it and they didn't do a lot of the things that ruin modern remakes or demakes, uh, as people have called them. And, uh, you know, it's it's not a movie I would buy and uh, rewatch a lot because I never watched Chippendales Rescue Rangers. I'm not, you know, not for any reason. I just I had grown out of cartoons by that point. I was uh, into college and role play games, um, but it was a fun movie. You know, so I recommend it. It's a fun movie. You can watch it. That's, that's great. I'm glad that you enjoyed it, despite not having been the audience for Chippendales Rescue Rangers. That uh, that's interesting, uh, because that was you know that was my time. I was definitely a Ducktales Rescue Rangers 
uh, Darkwing Duck Age. And uh, Rescue Rangers was one of the better ones. They were all good, of course. They, uh, they have a Disney, even the Disney afternoon that Rescue Rangers was part of. That gets a callback uh, at some point in the in movie. Um, and and a lot of these things you would think would just be member berries, but they actually have plot reasons to be there. So when you have sort of nostalgia that drives the plot forward, I don't think that really counts. Like funny little things from the show that people who watch the show would remember and be like, oh yeah, that's awesome. That actually turns out to be a critical plot point. I don't think that counts as a member barrier. I think that counts as something substantive. That counts as respect the original show. Because when you're doing something like this that calls back to the original show, you want stuff from the original show in it. And the fact that, because you, you don't want everything to be different, that wouldn't make any sense. Um, so yeah, you know, I liked it. It didn't, it didn't offend me just by its existence. And I know a lot of people get offended just for it existing because, you know, it is Rescue Rangers and that show was over a long time ago, so they shouldn't be remaking it or whatever. But yeah, I'd recommend it, especially, you know, if you like the original Rescue Rangers. It's a, it's a nice callback. And the last one is Sonic 2. Um, and I can pretty much recommend this with no qualifications. It was fun. Video movie, the great video game movie. Um, and it was just as fun as the first one. Knuckles is awesome. He's voiced by Idris Elba, and Idris Elba does just a bang-up job. Um, at one point, the if you like glowy memes, there's glowy memes to be had from this movie. And I hope I'm not spoiling any major in that because it's hilarious when it happens. <laughs> it's just so darn funny. <laughs> um, and and you think that movies nowadays put all the funny bits in the trailer to make it seem better than it is? Sonic does not put all the funny bits in the trailer. Um. Tails shows up. They put that in the trailer. Tails is a great character. Sonic is a great character, and he's not as uh, not as scatterbrained as they made him in the first movie. Uh, so his character is actually improved in its presentation. Um, the Donut Lord is back. He's a lot of fun. Um, the Donut Lord? His wife and the wife's sister who hates him are both back, and they both have grown as characters, uh, and that's a lot of fun. I, it, you know, Eggman is back. And Jim Carrey gives another just great performance as Eggman. I liked him even, you know, 
I liked his casting even more. Um, I'm not saying he was better than he was in the first movie. I'm just saying um, this is just more goodness added on to the goodness from the first movie. And so it made me appreciate the fact that they cast Jim Carrey as Eggman even more. His mustache is epic. <laughs> um, yeah, it's fun. Uh, in contrast to Chippendale's Rescue Rangers, the CGI is actually great. Um, and, and not the Chippen, I'm saying in contrast to the satire in Chippendale's Rescue Ranger of computer animation, where they poke fun at about it being bad most of the time. Mm -hmm. the, the computer animation in Sonic is great. Um, and they have places that are inspired by Sonic levels we hadn't seen before. Um, which is, you know, I had fun watching those. And I guess maybe it was a little bit of member berries, but uh, I don't care. I love the first Sonic game and seeing some of the, you know, architecture and stuff in the first Sonic game was fun. Uh, yeah. I thoroughly enjoyed the movie and I can give it a just on the just on the level of being a fun kids movie uh, that also has things in there that appeal to adults kind of on that Pixar level. No, I'm not saying it's as good as as Pixar in its prime. I'm just saying it's a kids movie that will also appeal to adults because it's got some adult things that kids won't get. But adults will be like, oh, yeah, um, it's great. Um uh before we before we wrap up, Simon Hogwood has one question in the chat. Is there some correlation? Other correlation between Sonic and Rescue Rangers you'd like to mention? Um they're just both good fun movies that respect the original material. And they don't insult the audience. Uh, they don't go out of their way to, you know, they're just, they are really um, good uh, exceptions to the general rule for modern movies uh, and modern animated movies. Uh, it does not lecture you about woke things either it is not a the message movie um any any theme or message you could get from sonic is the same one you would have gotten from a saturday morning cartoon in the 80s <laughs> it really is a kids movie um apparently and... apparently uh you might have missed a cameo uh of Sonic in Rescue Rangers. Oh, sorry. There is a huge, long, uh, again, pertinent to the plot, actually, uh, ugly Sonic from, uh, from the original that they, you know, had to go back and replace or chose to go back and replace for the sake of the movie, which is an expensive but wise decision. Um, they, uh, ugly Sonic shows up and, uh, again, it's 
pertinent to the plot. So even though he's a meme, he does show up in, in Rescue Rangers and has an effect on the plot. It's it's funny. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> They're signing autographs at a convention. Um because he's a tune. He's he got cut from the movie and they brought in the good Sonic. <laughs> Uh, that's great. And and he's talking, and they do this bit where everybody who talks to him, they zoom in on his human teeth because people can't help but stare at his eerie, eerie human teeth to the point where they can't even hear what he's saying. And so the audio kind of, you know, goes, goes wonky where you can't understand what he's saying. <laughs> It's a fun bit. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, if you watch Chippendale's Rescue Ranger, watch out for the uh, ugly Sonic bits. They're, they're fun. Somebody was complaining, complaining about them on Twitter. I'm like, I don't care if he's a meme. His bits were fun. They're just fun. And maybe I'm exposed to too much complaining on Twitter. Huh, maybe. Um... But yeah, Ugly Sonic was a fun part of Rescue Rangers. Absolutely love it. Well, cool. Sounds like sounds like fun. And, and you said that that is a is a kids movie. Um, rescue or not Rescue Rangers? Sonic in particular is a good kids movie. What about Rescue Rangers? Oh yeah, uh, does rescue it have Rangers. this? Rescue Rangers is a kids movie too. Um, but again, with, with stuff in there that adults are gonna are gonna find rewarding. I mean, it's a good it's a good cross between made for kids, rewarding for adults. Um, so, yeah, if you if you have Disney Plus and um, and you have kids, most people who have Disney Plus have kids. Um, it's something you can sit down and watch with your kids without worrying about being lectured to about stuff. Um, and it's fun. Cool. And you won't be completely bored while watching it. There's stuff in there that you will find that you will appreciate too. It's surprising to be able to have positive reviews of three things in one week and a sort of positive review of, of the lost city of D. Cool. Can you, I, I literally can't remember the last time that's happened. I don't know that that's ever happened. No, no, normally everything's terrible. So long. Uh, I, hear good things. I hear good things about Maverick, so I'm hoping to get out and see that. Um, and I'm still being balked in any attempt to see uh, everything everywhere all at once because I hear great things about that, and I want to go see that. Um, but, you know. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, well, good Good stuff this week. Uh, I had a great week. It was not 
like watching, you know, Picard and Halo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, also yeah. Obi Wan out, so I'm gonna be watching that. Oh, yay! I've heard Somebody nothing but just... awful things about that. Somebody was complaining about it yesterday, and and because uh, apparently the first two minutes of the show, and remember, folks, it's not a spoiler if it's literally the opening scene, so you can't complain about spoilers. Had um, stormtroopers going into a Jedi temple and shooting up some younglings. So basically, been the Sith, right? And the person was just crying and said they couldn't believe how cruel LucasArts was to release it, you know, how triggered they were because of, and I'm just like, guy, um, it's Star Wars about Obi-Wan leaving after revenge of the sith what did you expect i mean put the story together <laughs> i i honestly don't know if people like that really are triggered which scares me because it's fiction and it's fiction that had already been done before that's been done a lot and you just have to roll with it. I mean, Anakin Skywalker chopped them up with the lightsaber. I mean, I'm sorry you didn't see it all on screen, and I can't believe it was explicit violence. I have to believe it's implied violence. Mm -hmm. But you can't be, you know, Oh, I mean, if people really are that weak, that that triggers them and, and causes them to cry on, on and go on Twitter, that scares me that people are that weak. Or if they're just pretending and that just frustrates me. I mean, are you pretending to be that weak? Oh, oh, I did have a couple of things I wanted to do right before we go. Um, this week is Christopher Lee's birthday. He turned 100. I mean, I know he's dead. He's been dead for like five years, I think, 2017. Mm -hmm. But uh, he would have turned 100. So I celebrated Christopher Lee's birthday. I flashed seven Dracula um, emojis in my birthday message because he played Dracula seven times in seven different Hammer Horror films. Plus, he was Saruman and Count Dooku in, you know, Star Wars and and so many other great roles. Um, just an incredible actor. So, happy birthday. Uh, also this week, Ray Liotta died. Um, and on the same day, the keyboardist, the founding keyboardist for Depeche Mode died, and the drummer for Yes died. Um, oh. So, uh, along with uh, other deaths that happened this week, uh, I want to 
you know, express my condolences to any and all family members and uh, wish them comfort um, and uh, wish those who passed rest in peace. Um, and uh, who else had birthdays on the same day as Christopher Lee? I was told. Um, Harlan Ellison had a birthday the same day as Christopher Lee. And there was someone else who I can't remember right now. But um, Harlan Ellison, great writer, but also weirdly uh, overly praised. Uh, he was both a great writer and overly praised. So it's kind of weird that way. Uh, he did one of the best episodes of Star Trek ever, um, which is uh, City on the Edge of Tomorrow, I believe, where, um, you know, McCoy goes back in time and accidentally stops, uh, stops the United States from entering World War II and all kinds of bad stuff happens. It has perhaps the most apt line I have ever heard in Star Trek ever, which is when McCoy is horrified about the medical techniques of the 20th century, when they say that 20th century doctors cut people apart and stitch them up like garments. And you could see <laughs> why, some, yeah, you could see why someone from his century, when they can just, you know, heal a lot of things just by waving stuff over them. They don't even have to uh, cut people open to work medicine or why they can just seal people's flesh by waving something over them, why he would be horrified by incisions and stitching people back up. Um, uh, and the absolute horror that the actor said it with was, was so convincing. Uh, but yeah, that's why I say he was, you know, a genius writer, but also weirdly overpraised. Um, or I should say also weirdly overpraised. Um, so yeah, I think we're done. Me too. It was a great show. Thanks for chatting with me. Uh, everybody in the chat had fun. We love talking about D&D &D here. Uh, we love complaining about poor writing and everything here. Um, I hope everybody listening later uh, enjoyed the show, maybe got some good information, and think a little bit more about your game design. Uh, but for me, I'm signing off for this week. Daddy Warpig, thanks for being amazing. The floor is yours. Um. All right. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Uh, anybody listening, whether you've listened live or are listening later, you can catch the show every Saturday, just about, at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific. And come and participate in the chat um, and talk to our no lie, no irony, uh, incredibly intelligent audience uh, who always has lots of fun things to say. And... Uh, we are also available uh, later on youtube.com slash geekgab, youtube.com slash geekgab, uh, where you can read the chat and uh, bask in the joy 
or you can catch us on soundcloud.com on the Google Play Store or on itunes.com and you can download us to the device of your choice or just listen to us on the web we uh are signing off for today but don't you worry don't you fret we will be back